You're listening to the Verse Podcast. There is a recurring interlocutor throughout your book, Humankind, and this is Marx, Karl Marx. What is it that you have to tell him? Hmm. Well, I, what I'd really like to tell him is that he's got great hair, and could I have some of it? Um, I think I'm telling him that um, his view is very good news as long as we take the anthropocentrism out that it actually works much better um, if you take the anthropocentrism out and that the anthropocentrism is a bug not a feature that's the that's the headline um, I'm really trying to rethink his notion of species being in a sort of um, ecological way in a way that uh, is attuned to ecological facts right like the fact that we inhabit a biosphere the fact that we um, are made of things that aren't human, for example. Um, and I'm also trying to think what that could mean in a, in a non-racist and non-sexist way, right? So, I mean, when we think about the human species, um, we've tended to rely on um, enlightenment philosophy, um, you know, so that when you scratch the surface of a human underneath, you find a white guy, you know. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of revisiting this notion of species being um, and, and, and sort of trying to reimagine it. Your book proposes a number of new and bold ideas. One of them in particular sounds quite central to the book and particularly interesting to me, and this is the notion of subsendence, which is the idea that the whole is less than the sum of its parts. What does this mean and why is this relevant? Well, um, it's very counterintuitive. And uh, that's what interested me about it in the first place, when the idea popped in my head. Um, and it's been popping into my head, actually, for years. When I wrote the book, The Ecological Thought, I started to think about interconnectedness. Um, and it occurred to me that if everything is roughly interconnected, in an ecological sense, then actually there's weirdly less of everything. Um, I took an example from the uh, US tax code, actually, that. Uh, when you're married in the USA, you're treated as one and a half people rather than two, um, so that in effect you become three quarters of a person when you get married. And so in some way the US tax code is saying something true, possibly psychologically also about, about that state, right? Um, but maybe it's also saying something or hinting at something that's sort of more deeply true than that. Um, and for a while I've been thinking about how um, certain forms of monotheism which are really agricultural society's way of explaining itself to itself, are not really helping in, in terms of how we rethink um, pretty much everything, you know, as we enter into an age where we have to take non-human beings into account, seeing as how they're already in social space, which kind of means that social space is, was never human in the first place, right? So I decided to go there. Um, and what occurred to me was that um, this thing that I always hear quite a lot in ecological speech began to sound rather theistic, and this is the idea that the whole is always greater than the sum of its parts. And I thought to myself, well, I wonder whether that's true, actually. I mean, I keep saying it to myself, and, and I keep kind of nodding along when people say it, and we always do sort of, oh, yes, of course, oh, I know that, you know, the, who doesn't know that the whole is always greater than the sum of its parts? And wouldn't it be absurd, you know, not to think that? And it's as if we're all afraid um, of something, you know, um, our own stupidity, probably, in my case, um, that we don't really want to go there. Um, but what does it really mean if the whole is greater than the sum of its parts? It means that the parts are kind of expendable. So, for example, 
Take the concept of Gaia, right, the James Lovelock idea that's also in popular culture right now, that, you know, that Earth systems are effectively um, a kind of uh, former whole that is greater than the sum of their parts insofar as there's this sort of entity-like um, kind of, uh, not exactly intent, but agency perhaps would, would, would be the right word. Um, this means really that it doesn't matter if, say, um, coral goes extinct. Because, you know, Gaia, Mother Nature or whatever, will always kind of, you know, evolve something else to take the place of, 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 of the missing component, right? The, the, the components are less important than the whole and the um, things that make up the whole are treated as components, right, as a means to an end. And this began to suck for me, you know, in various ways. And I sort of thought, well, also given that um, most ecological beings, such as trees or, or ecosystems or meadows or, or human beings or chimps, are like messy heaps of other things. Um, they're not exactly holes in that kind of grandiose, exciting way that this holism is seeming to suggest. On the other hand, I am a holist, right? Like, I don't believe that things are reducible only to little bits. And so I need to rethink what holism could mean. So I decided, somewhat perversely, just to flip it upside down and go, what if the whole was always less than the sum of its parts? Um, and I realized that actually, according to the sort of thinking that I like to pursue, namely object-oriented ontology, um, this is intuitively true. Because, and here's the argument, um, if something exists, it exists in exactly the same way as something else. Ontology is the study of how things exist, not what exists. That's a common mistake. I'm, I'm not the object police. I'm not trying to tell you that there are 20 million things or one thing or three things or whatever. I'm simply saying that if something exists, say for example a sentence, if sentences are real and sentences exist, then they exist in the same way as spoons. And how do they exist in the same way? Um, they exist in the way that they have a kind of gap between what they are and how they appear. And this gap is irreducible and transcendental. But nevertheless, um, the appearing and the being of the thing are kind of inextricably welded together, right? Um, this actually implies what I'm calling subsendence. Um, but um, it's actually much more simple than that. Um, so uh, let's take uh, my hand as an example, because I have it, right? Let's assume this is a thing and it exists. Um, so there's my hand. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not an exclusion of some other being, like, like some kind of god or something. And, you know, hands are real. Let's just pretend they're real for a minute. And it's made up of these parts, right? There are these bits of it. There's a ring. There's all these fingers. There's various different lines on it. You know, there's various signs of aging and so on. Um, and um, those things are on, ontologically more than one, right? If, 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 if they exist, they exist in the same way as the whole. And the whole is one, right? There's, there's one hand. There's lots of parts. Childishly, simply, the whole is always less than the sum of its parts. There's always more part than whole. And as I say that to people, I see them going just blank. It's sort of like the sentence goes through their ear and comes out the other way. And they're like, uh, he just said a really, really naive, dumb thing. And, or I didn't even hear it, you know. And, th and, and that's an interesting reaction to me, that something so childishly simple to understand would be automatically almost deleted. To me, this is a symptom of some kind of deep-seated and very pervasive ideological structure that's kind of structuring how people think. Since there's no good reason why the whole is always greater than the sum of its parts, and since the idea that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts 
could generate a lot of kind of problems, a lot, a lot of violence, in fact. Um, it seems to me that um, somewhere in our thought and in social space, we're kind of retweeting this, uh, what I take to be a, um, a certain kind of theistic notion, right? You know, there's, there's at least one entity in the universe that's bigger and badder and more um, pervasive than everything else, basically, and, it, and exists in a different way, because if the whole is always greater, it also means, you know, um, better than or, or, or more real than somehow. Whereas my, my less doesn't mean worse than or, or, or less real than, it simply means ontologically less in number, right? So the consequences of this are great, actually, because it sort of means that there's always a lot of wiggle room. You know, there's always a lot of stuff happening inside of stuff that allows new stuff to happen. Um, so, for example, um, the biosphere, right? It's ontologically one, um, but it has lots and lots of parts, right? Um, and, you know, you can sort of think to yourself, well, sort of this is why evolution can happen, right? Um, or, for example, um, neoliberalism right now right now neoliberal capitalism covers a large amount of the surface of earth physically right um, in various different ways and a lot of intellectuals like me like to upstage each other by inventing scarier bigger badder versions of this thing that we find ourselves inside of now what does this remind me of this reminds me of the sort of my god is bigger than yours competition right and how's, how's that working out for political praxis, right? Like, we're actually in the business of disempowering ourselves by hitting each other over the head with our kind of invisible God concept while pretending not to be religious. I mean, this is completely screwed, you know. Um, so um, my thought is, well, okay, so this, this thing that we're inside of, that we're part of, is ontologically tiny, right? It's physically massive, but there's so much more of us and this or whatever it is than it right it's 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 like an ontological reason why Shelley is correct right like why you know we are many they are few is actually not just you know it it, it doesn't just happen to be historically or empirically correct it's ontologically correct so my next question following from what you just said is about the relationship between an individual and the collective. Mm. If, the, if the whole is less than the sum of its parts, how can we understand the idea of collectivism that is, typically, that is typical of um, much emancipatory politics? Mm. I'm thinking also in terms of your repeated mentions of Max Stirner, mm. a fairly unfashionable mm -hmm. uh, philosopher in your book. Yeah. Um, misinterpreted as some kind of rugged individualist, I feel. Um, the whole notion of collective is actually so much better if you think about it as a whole that's less than the sum of its parts. Again, I'm a holist, right? So I believe in things like collectives. And of course, you know, I'm actually arguing that the human body is a collective of all kinds of things that aren't human, and that the biosphere is a collective of all kinds of entities, um, and that this collectivity inevitably involves a kind of uneasy, um, quality to it, that things aren't absolutely glued together. Again, you know, um, we're not inside of an Audi, you know, and, 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 and that's quite good, right, because it sort of means that all kinds of new things can happen and there can be creativity. And that if, the, uh, if a future ecological, ecolo more ecologically attuned society is to arise, then it's going to be about increasing pleasure 
um, rather than increasing efficiency and control. And that pleasure is going to be about um, enhancing and, and producing more kinds of creativity in the world, um, not just human creativity, of course. Um, and so I feel like, um, to me, collective precisely doesn't mean community. Like, we really do need to think about what kind of whole we are part of. And um, if we're going with the notion of community, it, we, we, we're certainly going with being inside of some kind of Audi-like structure um, in which my identity, un unquote, really is irrelevant in the end or in the final instance. Um, since this inevitably will result in all kinds of not good stuff happening, um, and I take the reason for this to be because it's ontologically incorrect, right? So if you're messing with the ontological level, then, and you're getting it a bit wrong, then inevitably there's going to be violence on all the levels above that. And since everything else is above that, then there's going to be some quite interesting violence. And the violence that, you know, I see in particular is this kind of large-scale violence, you know, that's been going on for 12,500 years since the advent of the a particular kind of mode of addressing um, environmental issues, namely the one that we call agricultural civilization, the one that's actually running in the background, like a kind of computer program, running in the background of everything else, feudal, Soviet, capitalist, whatever. Um, there's this system running in the background. Um, and the system does rely on something more like a notion of community than a notion of, of, of collectivity. But I think that collectivity is uh, ontologically, scientifically and politically where, where it's at. The question now has to do with the fact of you're an ontologist. Why are you talking about politics? What is the mm. relationship between ontology and politics? Mm. Why is it useful to talk about how things exist and what kind of things exist mm. in terms of political possibilities? Mm. And how is it interesting to Marxists mm. or people that fight for emancipation? Mm. That's an interesting question because, um, in a way, um, I, you know, in terms of my own personal thought, intellectual life, I came to this kind of like upside down from there. Namely, people were constantly saying, why aren't you talking about politics? What is this ontology stuff? This is apolitical, stupid stuff, and you should be mucking in with the rest of us and talking about politics. And I understand it because I was brought up in that, um, you know, new leftish type of a tradition. Um, and, you know, my tutor at school was Terry Eagleton and blah, 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 blah. So I understand, you know, um, and so I sort of, the pa past Tim looks at himself in the mirror and goes, what the hell are you on, man? What are you doing? You know, um, but I feel like this is a very, very helpful, um, if you like, kind of a detour that I took um, through something seemingly apolitical to get back to how to think something political. The point being that, you know, um, Rethinking politics is precisely what is required right now if we're going to be including non-human beings in the equation. And in order to include non-human beings in the equation in a full-on way, you do need to address quite deep questions about what exi the word exist actually means, you know. Um, because it seems to me quite clear that the way we imagine existing has an awful lot to do with anthropocentrism. For example, take the notion of you know, what we think we're doing when we're doing something at all, right, which is relevant to the question of politics. We think we're acting, right, and we often assume that 
non-human beings are behaving, right? In other words, non-human beings are just machines that kind of scuttle around like Roombas or something or, 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 or Juju pets, you know. Um, and um, we are, you know, sort of fully present to our intentions and we kind of act them out. We know this isn't true scientifically, but somehow we still have this idea that we're doing this. Um, or we go, well, since this isn't quite true scientifically, we're also juju pets running around and blah, 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 which is unfair um, to us and to non-humans, and in particular also unfair to juju pets. And because in the end, why, how can you distinguish between actually a, 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 a life form and a, and a non-life entity, such as a juju pet or possibly a, a vampire? You know, how can you do that? Um, you can't really do that. Um, evolution science tells you that, you know, life forms come from non-life. Again, it's childishly simple, right? Um, and it's always been rather tricky to distinguish between conscious and non-conscious, or sentient and non-sentient, or, um, you know, more deeply living and non-living. And in the end, it's rather hard to distinguish between, I think, you know, existing and not existing, if we're going up against something like the metaphysics of presence, which I take to be a kind of default part of the social structure that we've been kind of reproducing in various different ways. Again, you know, at this large 12,000 year scale, right? In other words, now, like it, ontology is so not about looking at things from the point of view of eternity, especially if you don't think that there can be eternity because you don't think that there can be something going on and on and on forever because you have coming out of a deconstructive lineage that thinks that the metaphysics of presence is one of the most violent things ever thought up ever. Um, and uh, that which percolates into a lot of different modes, you know, of, 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 of behavior and thought. Um, and so, yeah, ontological questions are deeply political. Um, just ask someone engaged in a struggle such as the water protectors in um, northern uh, USA, indigenous people protesting the oil corporations, right? Like, there's an ontological war going on there between, you know, whose, whose reality is, is, is a more accurate, actually. Um, and um, it's it's pretty deep, you know, and the and the violence and intensity of our world should alert us to the fact that actually there, there, there's a sort of really vast, deep issue or issues going on here that we do actually have to think um, ontology to do politics really well, that actually thinking ontology differently is deeply political. As anyone who's read any of these weird, mostly men, mostly mansplainy blog philosophy things We'll see a lot of blokes usually go go on at each other about you know the the politics or normativity or whatever it is of their of their idea um, that they've just had in the speculative realism movement. Let's say um, if that's not to do with politics, I don't know what is. A philosophical question that is always implicit in your work. Um, has to do with a problem that also Heidegger discussed, mm. which is the difference between an idea of presence and an idea of existence, and the, uh, the boundary, in a sense, that we perceive between these two concepts and how one leads somewhere and the other one leads somewhere else. Can you tell me a bit more mm. about how you see this? Mm. Well, anyone who's been in any kind of long-term relationship will be able to tell you that there's a big difference between permanence and infinity. Um, permanence is something that sounds attractive, but is in fact unreal. Nothing is permanent. Um, and that's a good thing. Um, 
but infinity is 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 an interesting one. It's it, it's not really that. Um, it's not really a number series going on and on forever. You know, it's it's it, it's not one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, forever and ever and ever. Infinity means some kind of radical uncountability, right? I mean, there might be three of whatever it is, but I, for some reason, I can't count it. You know, in some way, um, it's infinite in that sense, right? Um, and the point is that um, one tends to mistake, and this is why I do agree with Heidegger on this. You know. Um, one tends to mistake um, whatever we might take, you know, the word be or is or exist to mean um, with actually existing things, you know, and that actually creates a kind of circularity because then you're like, well, and well, what, you know, so how does this peanut exist? Well, it exists in a way that other things exist. And what does exist mean? Well, it's this kind of thing that peanuts do. And what is a peanut? It's a thing that exists. And what does exist? And it goes round and round like that. Um, and so, you know, exist doesn't necessarily mean um, um, be sort of there in a way that I can point to. In fact, it seems intuitively the case that it's very difficult to uh, point to everything about a thing all at once. Um, and um, I, one starts wondering whether this isn't just because we're sort of limited 3D beings, that actually a 5D being, you know, could, would, would also find it very hard to point to, to, to everything all at once. Um, and um, you know, um, let's take let's take this thing here for as an example. This thing called Tim, right? Now, Tim is made of all kinds of things that aren't Tim. You know, Tim's got clothes. Tim's got you know daffodil DNA. You know, all human beings are thirty-five percent daffodil DNA. And interestingly, um, and there's and in that DNA, there's all kinds of viral code insertions and so on and so on and so on. Um, and we have thoughts, and we you know we have received ideas, and and blah blah blah, right? Um, so, so there's a lot less of Tim than than he thought there was, you know. But nevertheless, Tim does exist in some way. Um, Object-oriented ontology uses the word "withdraw" to describe this kind of shadowy way in which there's weirdly less of Tim than 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 he might like to think. Um, I use the word "open" um, because I think it um, might help a little bit to understand what "withdraw" means. "Withdraw" doesn't mean actually shrink back in measurable space. Withdraw means something eludes my access, right? And when I say access, I mean any kind of access, actually. I, I, I don't just mean thinking about, which is a kind of traditional anthropocentric way in which we imagine access, right? Like, only thinking beings can really access peanuts, you know, like uh, other peanuts can't do it, and, and, um, and birds can't really do it, and so on and so on. But, you know, actually, when... Um, when a bird, you know, pecks at a peanut, that's a peanut peck, that's an accessing of the peanut. And when I think about the peanut, it's an accessing. And when I chew the peanut, it's an accessing of the peanut. But, you know, a peanut chew and a peanut peck and a peanut thought are not a peanut, actually. And if the peanut itself, or possibly herself or himself, were to go on Oprah and talk about itself, then what it would say would be sort of peanut autobiography, not actual peanut. So even the peanut can't access the peanut in itself. Nevertheless, it's a peanut. It's not a blue whale. It's a peanut, right? Um, this is very handy if you want to deanthropocentrize the human, if you actually want to still say that there are human beings, but you don't want to say that they're human all the way down and all the way through. And in particular, this human is some kind of unmarked, bland, blare thing, underlying appearances that's always there, um, which always defaults to, you know, white, male. The prob this is the problem, right? 
and it's a political problem, but it's a political problem because it's an ontological problem, because um, there's a kind of default ontology hardwired into social space that exist means underlie appearances all the time. Now, if things are kind of interlocked with the way they appear in the way that I like to suggest, then it can't be the case that things are kind of um, really, truly, actually present underneath how they appear in a way that you could just like scrape off all the appearances and you sort of get to the real thing. What you get there would be a kind of um, scraped offness, and that scraped offness would also not be the thing, right? Um, it's kind of elementary Kant in a way. Um, he has this great example of raindrops. You know, there are these raindrops falling on my head, and um, they are round and they are wet and so on and so on. They have a certain kind of momentum. And all of these things are raindrop data. They aren't actually the, the raindrop, says Kant. Um, and of course, but, but, but they're not blue whale data. They're not peanut data. They're raindrop data. So, so these are raindrops and this is definitely raindrop data. We're talking about science here. You know, science is obliged to, to not make ontological statements because um, contemporary science kind of intuitively grasps an ontological truth, which is that there's a weird gap between data and, and, and the thing of which the thing is data. Yeah? That's the difference between science and scientism, actually, which is, the, which is a kind of religious or religious belief that sci uh, you know, scientific facts are actually pointing at reality as such, rather than being really interesting, compelling, statistically likely patterns in data. Um, which are accurate, right? Um, but not accurate in that kind of um, theological sense in which, you know, because the Pope told you that um, peanuts are real and, and, and that they have certain properties, therefore they do. And if you don't believe that, then you're going to get punished in some way, yeah? Um, it's much better to think, for example, that it's 90 whatever percent it is likely that humans cause global warming than to insist that humans did cause global warming. It's actually much truer and more accurate um, the trouble is that um, we all want to secretly want to not know that and we all secretly want to default back to, you know, there, there, there really is something underlying the appearances, right? Um, and it's in particular a kind of um, uh, a sort of Western concept um, that is, 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 is part of the armory, really, of, you know, of how um, sort of uh, Earth domination occurred, yeah? Um, so again, you know, I feel like this ontological issue is, a, is also a, a, a political issue. And here comes the question. When you talk about um, existence and ontology, you often talk about reality as a, as a shared idea of what exists. And you talk about the concept which you call the symbiotic real. Mm and how this symbiotic real has been severed, mm. which is a traumatic event. Mm. What does this all mean? Mm. Yeah, what does it all mean? Um, well, I've been trying to find a phrase that I'm comfortable with to describe the thing that people call nature. I take this term to be an extreme reification, um, and um, so I, I, I don't like to use it at all. Um, so I sort of wonder what's out there, you know, above and beyond how I think about it. And what seems to be out there in a biological and ecological sense is symbiosis. Things kind of coexist in an uneasy way in which it's hard to determine 
in any particular relationship, you know, who's the top and who's the bottom in a certain way. Um, and the relationship could come apart. That's sort of part of relationality, actually, that, that, that there could be what Derrida calls, you know, hospitality, right? There's a, that, that hostility is part of being a host, you know, um, that uh, the shadow or threat or possibility of enemy is sort of always haunting the possibility of friend. If, if, if you try to get rid of it, then actually that's where the problem is. If you try to determine in advance who counts as friend and who counts as enemy, there's the problem right there. Um, you know, in a way this is based basically similar to the idea that if you try to determine the difference between existing and not existing too rigidly, then there's a big problem. Um, so I decided that the best way to describe ecological biological reality would be to use this phrase symbiotic real. Um, sim real meaning, you know, whether we like it or not, you know, whether we think about it or not, um, it's, it's there, you know, right, and it's there right now, yeah. Only quite a lot of my culture, quite a lot of my economic structure, quite a lot of, of, of how I coexist with non-human beings and human beings is screaming against this truth, right? Um, and it seems to me that um, there has been what I decided to rather Game of Thronesly call the severing, because I thought it was quite nice to think up a really dramatic fantasy kind of term for this, the severing. Um, this, um, this severing, this kind of um, contradicting all the time of, of the symbiotic real, um, isn't an event that happened at a certain point in time, it's something that's happening now. Um, think about the Big Bang, right? In a certain way, you know, everything in this room is a, is a representation of the current state of the Big Bang, right? The, so in a certain way, the Big Bang is happening now, you know. Um, the Anthropocene may have started in 1945 or 1780, whatever, or whenever it started, but in a way, it's happening now, right? Like the history isn't a sequence of atomic points in the same way as eternity isn't a sequence of, of numbers going on and on, infinity isn't a sequence of dots going on and on forever. Um, and so um, I think um, the, the, some, of the, some of the obvious um, sort of evidence for this severing um, is sort of staring us in the face. It's called uh, children. Um, the functional definition of child in contemporary culture is a person who is still uh, capable of talking to not only um, alive non-human beings, but, but stuffed animals as if they're alive, um, who is sort of allowed to do that without being seen as, as weird or, or, or crazy in some way. And at some point, you're supposed to not do that. That's called growing up. You know, the, take the Winnicott example. There's playing and there's reality. And the idea of playing with your soft toy is to get to a point where you can throw your soft toy away and, and, and talk about real stuff with, with real people. This always seemed a bit sad to me. I was always wanting to hold on to my soft toy, you know, and, and, and sort of my project a little bit is like, how can I get it so that we can hold on to our soft toy as adults, you know, and um, how come we can't actually imagine a situation in which we could have a conversation about seemingly grown-up stuff like politics or whatever while holding soft toys? And why can't it actually be done in, in sort of silly, playful mode? You know, of all, the, of all the moods or modes that politics is conducted in, I can't often think of many examples of, um, of silliness, but actually silliness and playfulness, childish playfulness would be a great thing to add. You know, some of my 
more anarchistic friends, such as my friend Jan Gunnar, you know, he's the ex-mayor of Reykjavik, um, formed a kind of anarcho-surrealist type of a party um, that was very, very playful and silly and that was extremely positively disruptive um, in um, Icelandic politics there. A central aspect to, this, to your book, and part of the subtitle, is the notion and the word of solidarity. Mm. But you talk about solidarity not just as a practice, but almost as, as a feature of ontology. Mm. How, is, how is that possible and how does it relate to what you were talking about in terms of the symbiotic realm? Mm, mm, mm. Um, if things are related in a kind of slightly uneasy but nevertheless inextricable, irreducible way, then the noise that makes is called solidarity. And the term actually describes a, a state of, 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 of being as well as a practice. It's very interestingly situated between doing something and being something. And if you remember the kind of weird false distinction between acting and behaving, it kind of reminds me of that. So there's a kind of human-non-human -human distinction within the notion of solidarity itself that I would like to disrupt. Um, I personally think that solidarity is the default affect of the biosphere. Since it's the, since it's the default affect of the biosphere, we can only really think solidarity um, by including non-human beings in that thought. Otherwise, it's always going to go a bit wrong. Um, and, um, yeah, the... the uh, the aesthetic experience gives you a kind of a clue as to what I, I mean. When, you, when, you're, when you're hanging out with an artwork, in a way, what, what the aesthetic experience is, is a kind of solidarity for no reason. There's a feeling of, of uh, belonging together for however long or short a time that is, and however weird or excruciating that is, there you are coexisting with something that probably isn't even alive, let alone sentient, let alone conscious, let alone human. It's a painting, you know, by Leonardo da Vinci, let's say, for example, in the Louvre, just to take a really, really corny example, because I like thinking and talking about corny things. Um, and there you are kind of hanging out with it. You know, the, the, the day after the presidential election, um, I happened to be teaching um, the third critique of Kant, and people came into the class crying, you know, and um, very, very upset, and what are we going to do? And I said, well, it's quite good that we're actually looking at the aesthetic today, um, because on the one hand, it's kind of a relief, but on the other hand, it's, it's why is it a relief? It's not because it's apolitical particularly, it's because it's actually a sort of gesturing towards or channeling a kind of future politics in a way, so that, or, or, or a politics of futurality as such that can't be completely articulated in any form of politics. And this futurality has to do, again, with this kind of uh, kinship solidarity feeling, right? Like kinship, kindness, kind, you know, it's, 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 it's one of the words that's in the mix there when we think about this notion of human kind and kindness. Um, and um, it ended up being a very, very helpful class because we were able to achieve some kind of... Uh, um, sort of mind meld together against the awfulness of the, 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 the situation that we were in. You would say hanging with an artwork. You didn't say hanging in front of an artwork. artwork. You said mm. with. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're hanging with an artwork, 
if you're hanging with objects, what do objects tell you? Mm. Yeah, when, 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 when you hear the word object, you tend to imagine in your mind the worst possible thing that could happen to a human being, aka the dreaded objectification. And so the notion of object-oriented ontology is very provocative because it suggests that we think that everything is reducible to objectified stuff. That's exactly the opposite of what we're trying to say. What we're actually trying to say is that since the notion of person is actually quite cheap, since it's impossible to distinguish myself between um, you know, being me as a person and, 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 and me as an android, let's say, for example, um, you know, Descartes sort of right, right? Like, like a default uh, mode of being a person is being paranoid that I might not be a person. Since that's impossible, therefore, it's not possible to maintain a distinction between humans as people and non-humans as people. And since we've already gotten rid of the idea that life and non-life are um, thinly, rigidly bounded and separated from each other. We might as well include ashtrays and pillows and, 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 and walls and spoons in the mix as well. So one ends up sounding a little bit like um, some kind of goofy Yoda type of a character. And what I'm essentially saying um, to, to, to Marx a little bit in the book, is that, or, or at least to Marxism, is that, is that for sure you can have it. Absolutely go right ahead. Um, you just have to include hedgehogs, and you have to sound a little bit like Yoda. If you're okay with that, then by all means, you know, keep it. And actually, I'm okay with it. And so I'm sort of suggesting quite seriously that we, you know, drop the anthropocentrism. The trouble is when you take it out, you quite quickly arrive at a space not unlike, you know, sounding like Obi-Wan Kenobi. And most people think that's something that other people do, you know, like it's okay for... Uh, uh, an indigenous Australian person to sound like that, but it's not okay for a white person to sound like that. Now, isn't this kind of uh, replicating constantly the problem? Um, I get this quite a lot in Q&As when I do um, lectures. People seem to want me to carry on. I mean, obviously I'm a white man, but do I have to say and act in a white man way? Do I have to say white man things all the time? Um, it's as if um, when people accuse me of cultural appropriation, of indigenous cultures, what they want me to do is stay still so that I can be easily attacked, right? Like, you know, sort of maintain your position as a white guy oppressing us so that we have an easy target to attack. Now, what's wrong with this picture? Nothing's actually happening, nothing's really changed. We're just kind of looking more and more cynically at the status quo, and therefore, you know, political critique becomes a way of maintaining the status quo. Now, that doesn't sound very good to me. It doesn't sound like the actual motivation of political critique. And if I was going to say something to Marx himself, I might end up saying, mate, I'm so sorry that people like me appropriated you and other people like you in the later 20th century and turned you into this game where we're basically just getting off on proving that we're much smarter than the other guy down the corridor who, who's appropriated you as well, insofar as we can see through him more than, we, more than he can see through us, because we're more cynical than him, therefore more, we're more intelligent. Um, and what on earth has this got to do with, with caring for poor suffering workers, one of whom is the guy down the corridor, and one of whom is you. And, and so I'm so sorry we lost the plot, but to get back to, onto the plot without the kind of anthropocentrism and frankly patriarchal racism and speciesism that, that, that might be bugs in your lovely system, um, we need to start to sound a little bit like Yoda, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say. And, 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 I, and I sort of fantasize that Marx would be okay with it. Um, 
it's maybe that's a syndrome like a sort of hangover from religion where you think that the founder was a great guy and then all the people who did the religion after him except for you who's invented the right way of doing it is um you know really whack it probably is isn't it your way of writing you use a lot of um images mm. the uncanny valley the severing um and many many others mm. what is you think the relationship between poetry and philosophy mm. you i know you come from mm. studies of poetry and teaching about poetry mm. um but i also would like to ask you mm. for young writers mm. of philosophy and so on how should we think mm. about the relationship between poetry and philosophy mm. on a practical level mm -hmm. well my first thought when you ask the question is um you know obviously there's a difference which is the fact that Tim is a bit thick and can't really think that well. So he has to kind of patch together these images that are sort of compelling enough to give the illusion of thought. Um, and in a way, that's true in a, in a much deeper sense, because, because how can you think things that haven't yet been thought? And isn't that the fun of thinking and writing all together, that you're trying to write and think something that hasn't yet been thought? What would be the point in reinventing the wheel especially as we're talking about how pervasive certain um, beliefs and attitudes are, what would be the point of sustaining that, especially if we need to you know, re restructure society or destructure society in a very, very profound way in order to achieve something um, that's nicer you know, for, 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 for people who aren't Donald Trump, um, for example, and for, for, and for, and for non-human beings who aren't the stock market. It's sort of interesting that the one non-human being that most Marxism allows to be have agency is uh, commodity fetishism, you know. Um, the way in which you know my my um, all the all the products that I consume are also like parts of a kind of massively distributed computer that's constantly dis uh, computing value all over the place, such that we're always in a kind of AI you know device already. You know the singularities already occurred, as it were. Um, yeah, what's the relationship there? Well, you know, there's a very interesting phrase in the 18th Brumaire, which is that the working class needs to borrow its poetry from the future. I think that's literally true, because I think poetry is from the future. In fact, I think more a better way of putting it is that poetry is the future. Um, what do I mean? Well, poems are actually telling you something true about everything else. They're telling you something ontologically true. Um, they're telling you that um, there's an appearing aspect of things and there's a being aspect of things. And these things are kind of related but weirdly dislocated at the same time. Um, what's the appearing aspect of a poem? Well, you know, all the words in the poem well, represent decisions that some, some entities or other made, you know. And we can get into an argument about which entities made them, right? You know, was the poem written by an... A human author, was it written by the human author's brain? Was it written by um, the state of the economic system in which the author was living? Was it written by the author's family of which the author is a member? Was it written by the biosphere? You know, this is a sort of question that most uh, anthropocentric literary criticism doesn't ask, right? Like, was it written by the, you know, in the time of human evolution? Was it written in the 19th century? You know, all these questions we can ask, right? So let's not go there. Let's just assume that, you know, for, 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 for want of a better word, the way the poem appears is the past, in the same way that when I look at my face in the mirror, I see a map of everything that happened to my face, you know. In, in another sense, what is this poem, you know, and, and, and like the corny way of asking that question is, you know, what does the poem mean, you know? 
what's the significance of this poem and, 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 and the full significance of the poem never arrives, which is why you love it, which is why you keep rereading it. Um, and so actually, and this, and this is true, you know, and this is like the, the sort of Derridian in me um, of any sentence, right? You, you, you never really know how a sentence is going to end, strawberry, rabbit, peanut, pope. You never really can tell when the punctuation point is going to come, hedgehog, cigarette, ditto, ellipsis. And so there's always a kind of futurality built into expectations about meaning altogether. Meaning is the future, writing is the past in a way, right? Um, and, you know, um, appearing is the past and being is the future, yeah? Um, what I don't believe in very much is the notion of present. I think, you know, what we call present is a kind of uneasy relative motion between past and future sliding uh, against each other like two trains. You know, maybe, maybe one train is still and the other one is moving and you get that feeling of motion even when you're on the still train because of the two way the trains are sliding past each other. Um, this queasy feeling of relative motion can't be pinned down to a specific atomic point, um, which is why I call it nowness rather than presence, um, just to sort of think of a different word um, so we don't get confused. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's not, not, it's not just that it's important for philosophers to think of great ways to describe things because that'll be really compelling to people and effective and stuff. I think that actually that aspect um, where some kind of image that you don't quite completely understand, they're, 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 therefore it's an image, it's not a concept quite yet, it's a sort of quasi-almost-not-quite concept, um, is in a way philosophy as such. It's, it's actually, the, it's, you're, you're sort of trying to bring a little bit of the future into the nowness. You're trying to bring a little bit of, you know, something different into um, whatever this is, um, because you you know, you, you, you have some kind of suffering right now and you, you maybe you, you'd like not to, might be a motivation. Um, and um, so in a certain way, um, if I was going to be, if this really is about talking to young people, you know, like, mm, um, it's sort of, uh, it's definitely the case that um, philosophy departments, as far as I know, are unlike English departments, generally speaking, some of the most sexist places in the humanities. Um, and perhaps one reason why is, is, is the fact that um, there is this insistence on um, meaning rather than, rather than writing and that um, this difference has to do with appearing being sort of worse somehow, ontologically worse than being. And another way of saying that is that, you know, femininity is worse and sort of evil. Um, perhaps than 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 masculinity, right? Um, and perhaps you know it, it it would be a good idea for um, philosophy in general to 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 become more poetic, um, not just because it would sound better, um, but because that would be actually more more philosophical in a certain way. You're talking about ontology, polar bears, dancing tables. But that's neo-Nazis in the U.S. Mm. This is the real emergency today. Mm. How, how does your work, your philosophy, how does object-oriented ontology, how does dark ecology help us mm. in any way tackling the problem of resurging xenophobia, nationalism, racism, mm. all across Western Europe and mm. North America? Mm. There's part of me that wants to say it 
it doesn't actually and the, I mean I'm motivated right now to take up arms and fight people physically in the street like my grandfather who was in the Cable Street riots you know like one reason why Britain didn't become fascist completely um, you know obviously one reason is that they already were you know they already sort of have this empire um, and they or, or, or that they didn't have to be but one reason why in particular Oswald Mosley didn't succeed is that people like my grandfather actually physically fought them off in the 30s and succeeded, you see, uh, they that contingently just happened to succeed. They could easily have become fascist, is the point. Um, and, you know, again, you know, this notion of uh, community, um, which is a sort of going notion of what being in a group means, is or has as one of its end points fascism. And so it's not unlikely that some environmentalisms might tend towards that, although there is a syndrome of pointing out the the implicit fascism of environmentalisms that can be very, very unhelpful because, you know, it might be quite nice right now to, to, to try to, you know, stop global warming and not to think, oh, that's a fascist thing to do. Um, and also, of course, there are anarchist ecological people, there are communist ecological people, there are all kinds of ecological ways of being e ecological that aren't actually fascist, and there are all kinds of lineages um, of that. Um, so, um, how does it work? How does it work? Well, actually, if you think about it, American fascism, in a way, cross fingers, hopefully, hopefully, is the last gasp of this um, white male supremacy, privilege, patriarchy situation. Um, that um, sort of unconsciously realizes that it's up against the wall and needs to become extremely violent in order to assert or maintain its existence. Um, what does that mean? That means that the default ontological idea that things kind of persist underneath their appearances and that this persistence looks most like a white guy um, is over um, because too many people realize that there are um, non-human beings in social space. That's one of the reasons why it's over, actually. Um, it's um, that, that default ontology is over. Um, and the people who are supporting, and you have to be a sort of a Nazi to, to really cleave to it, actually. So again, you know, um, it's not as if sentences can defeat David Duke. That, that's absurd. Um, it's not that, I mean, it's not as if poems can, can like, poems as, as such, you know, like, like, like poems on bits of paper can, can, can defeat Nazism. But, you know, if, again, we're going with Marx here and, and saying, you know, we're going to borrow the poetry of the future, um, what does it mean? It means that, you know, this is an ontological war fundamentally, and that um, really um, there's a, some kind of shift going on that's being registered in social space and this shift has to do with ecological awareness but doesn't really stop at ecological awareness that's just sort of the gateway um, in a certain way um, neoliberalism has created a kind of paper-thin Weimar Republic like situation everywhere and through this horrible paper-thin situation people can glimpse the paper-thin biosphere that's paper-thin also for exactly the same reason um, that's very scary, and one reaction to that could be fascism. And in fact, you wouldn't believe how many fascist movements in America tie themselves to hostility to 
Agenda 21, which is a certain part of the uh, Earth Summit of the United Nations in, in Rio. And Agenda 21 says stuff about sustainability there. And it says stuff about biodiversity. Um, and um, it's the biodiversity bit that they're going against. And they think this means, you know, that um, Agenda 21 is, is, is indicative of a kind of global anti-Semitic kind of conspiracy theory, um, you know, and um, so they've, in a way, the, the, in, a, in a kind of perverse upside down way, the extreme right has made this connection, you know, that actually there, there is indeed a link between speciesism and, and racism, and that actually keeping these two things apart is playing on an implicitly fascist game board. So sorry to say this to the to the new left, but you know we've we've been playing on this game board that's defined by a difference between um, thinking about race and thinking about species. And you know one of the things you can say, for example, is that you know we're racist because we're speciesist. People can some post-human philosophy goes that way, but unfortunately this overlooks the fact that. Um, the um, the idea of a rigid difference between the human and the non-human is supported by um, all kinds of entities that have been made to be inhuman or unhuman or abject in some way. And these and these entities, these beings, some of whom are us, um, kind of um, allow the difference between me and a, something like Hitler's dog, Blondie. Um, to be seemingly rigid and, 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 and true. Um, so that actually um, racism is the thing that's structuring speciesism. So the struggle against racism is in fact an ecological struggle quite deeply. And so the struggle against fascism is definitely an ecological struggle very profoundly. And so ultimately, we want our ball back, guys. Basic question. You talk about non-humans a lot. Your book is titled Humankind. Mm. Why? <laughs> um, well, I'm a funny person. I, I, I always end up being the scapegoat in any, in any social situation that I'm in. And, and I suppose writing is a kind of social situation. And I end up always saying the thing that you shouldn't say. So, for example, in one of my first books, I titled it Ecology Without Nature, and I said, you know, in order to have the concept of ecology in a full-on way, one has to drop the concept of nature, and I ended up receiving quite a lot of death threats, actually, from environmentalist people who cleaved to the idea of nature, and, and, and literally having to call the police, because I was being stalked by, by, by people who really didn't like this idea, and thought that Tim um, didn't believe in, in, in polar bears, and my whole shtick was, no, mate, I actually think I believe in polar bears even more than you do because I don't want to reduce them to some kind of component of this thing called nature that I take to be a substitute for some kind of omnipresent, omnipotent god, you know. Um, so, it's, so it's a funny situation and, and, and so, you know, when I was invited to write this book, um, I um, had slightly relaxed about always ending up um, the sort of satanic evil guy in the room, and I thought, what's the worst thing you can say right now in the academy? What's the worst thing you can say on social media, which is basically, you know, the academy on without being paid? Um, what's like the worst thing you can say? The worst thing you can say right now in social space is we're all the same. That's like the worst possible thing you could possibly say. I mean, you, you could be excluded from every demo, you know, like I've, I know people who get excluded from demos because they're not exactly the kind of person who's doing the demo. 
Um, and I'm regularly told on social media, don't you dare show up in solidarity to this, to this nightclub that was just shot up by this homophobic wanker, you know. Don't you dare do it unless you're exactly the person who is in that nightclub. Now, how's this working out as, as in, in terms of forming a, a large social movement that's actually going to change things that might be a good idea considering that all kinds of bad stuff is happening, you know. Um, so I sort of thought, let's, let's revisit this idea that we're all the same. Well, sort of what's wrong with it is that the idea of same, you know, implies an idea of something underlying appearances and that what underlies the appearances is a, is, is, is a white guy. It's the sort of enlightenment idea. Can we think human beings in a different way, given that human beings caused global warming? Um, I'm reluctant to say that capitalism did it. I'm reluctant to say that Americans did it, you know, that, I mean, you know, Americans did invent air conditioning, but it turns out that other people want it. And does that mean that, like, they're worse because they came later? They don't really want it. Americans really, really wanted it because they wanted it first and they invented it. What's this all about, you know? Um, so, you know, and, you know, if, if, if Neanderthals had had access to Coca-Cola Zero, I'm sure they would have totally loved it, and they'd have all kinds of opioid addiction problems, just like everybody else, you know. Um, so, you know, how to think the human in a way that isn't racist or misogynistic or speciesist, right? How to do that? Um, well, you sort of have to do it by imagining that human beings are a rather contradictory, messy heap of stuff, just like daffodils or, or, or blue whales or whatever. And what's cool about that is that these messy heaps are obviously a little bit part of each other, right? I have a bacterial microbiome that talks to the bacterial microbiome in my environment and so on and so on, just like different species of trees actually talk to each other. It has been discovered quite recently with chemical signals and they share nutrients, even different species. This whole idea that, you know, we're sort of competing in a kind of uh, rat race, that kind of survival of the fittest social Darwinism that was there in capitalist ideology before Darwin showed up, you know, they, they sort of forced him to, to, to put that phrase in, you know, survival of the fittest. And even that phrase doesn't mean survival of the guy who has the six-pack abs. It means survival of the person who happened to have sex and reproduce, even though they might have been a bit crap, you know. It's incredibly cheap, survival of the fittest. It doesn't mean, like, you fit it in perfectly to your situation because your situation is a weird moving target in which everything else is doing the same thing, you know, so it doesn't mean that even, it means something incredibly cheap, you know. I like making things cheap. I'm, I'm the dollar store philosophy guy in, 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 in all kinds of ways. Um, so, um, yeah, humankind, it, 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 it was the largest, most irritating sounding word I could think of. And the other thing is that those kinds of books, you know, books about human beings seem to be coming out nowadays and, and and why can't they be like a sort of left-wing one why why do they always have to be anthropocentric why do they have to be sort of transhuman sort of saying you know uh, human beings are guess what really different from other beings because we're sort of cunning and canny and wise and and and, and clever and, and 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 that's why we got rid of neanderthals because they were stupid and we had to kill them and in the end we're all going to you know transcend ourselves and live forever in the cloud um, and or cryogenically freeze ourselves, you know, and um, who cares about the energy input that that would require because boy oh boy won't those future people be excited when they open up the refrigerator and go, oh my god, it's Ray Kurzweil, I've been waiting all my life to see Ray Kurzweil, my life means something, finally my existence has a point. Um, you know, can't there be a book 
that goes the other way and says, you know, we're actually so much more like each other than, than we like to think because we're actually so much more like daffodils and elephants than we like to think. And that means, folks, that we can actually share each other's world. We don't have to share each other's world 100%. I don't share my world 100% with myself. You know, if, 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 if I was to be interviewed, um, if I was to be interviewed, what I would say wouldn't actually be me, it would be me interview stuff. You know, even I can't do that. Therefore, it's perfectly possible to share the world, say, of a lion um, who's been brutally shot by a dentist. There was a huge Facebook uproar about Cecil the lion. I think say Cecil in America. Cecil the lion was shot by an American dentist. And there was a huge uproar about it. And I got to thinking about it and thinking, well, above and beyond the usual old kind of sympathy, empathy, power politics where, you know, oh, poor old lion, you know, we're more powerful than you, but we can feel sorry for you. Perhaps there's actually some solidarity going on. You know, perhaps there's actually a, f a, f a feeling of kinship with the lion insofar as we, all s we, 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 also f we, we, we all feel so beaten down and kind of mechanized and, and, and reified by, by whatever it is in our, in our social space that actually we realize we have so much, we have more in common with a lion than we do with a dentist at this point. You know, and this sort of, this is like in, in the negative, a, a way in which um, one begins to recognize that has, one has something in common with a lion and that actually having in common must include non-human beings to work, right? And so humankind, colon, solidarity with non-human people is a title that is kind of a handy title because it's like if you don't want to read the book, that's what the book actually is. It, 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 it's not a subtitle in a way, it's an explanation. You know, what is humankind? It's solidarity with non-human people. You know, in other words, you know, when I share the world of a lion or um, an, an ashtray, um, I'm actually um, not reducing myself to my concept of a lion or an ashtray. I'm kind of slightly elevating the lion and the ashtray to personhood, but personhood because personhood has become really cheap. So I'm cheapening myself a little bit, but not in a bad way. And I'm elevating them. Now we're all people. Now we can all have um, solidarity with each other. Now we can actually have a, a revolutionary politics that, that, that might actually work. You are a practicing Buddhist. But the thing about Buddhism that I would like to ask you about is not the doctrine, it is the methodology. As many other traditional uh, ways uh, of understanding life and life in the world, it is less about education than it is about practice. Mm. What I'd like to ask you is, how do you think this kind of approach that is about practice, not praxis, mm. can inform philosophical thinking, political thinking mm. today. Mm. Mm. Um, gosh, I, I, I really want to like, um, you know, laugh so hard that, 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 that my face falls off when you say I'm a practicing Buddhist because I am in fact the worst possible um, Buddhist at this point. Um, and also, it's just funny, like, like, like the word philosopher, the more you get called something, the more absurd it should sound. I think in the end, you know, Socrates is quite right to call himself a clown. And every, every time I hear the word philosophy now, I hear the word clown, clown, clowning about, you know, sort of comes into my mind. And, 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 and saying stuff, you know, just because you're into saying stuff, 
you know, and in a way that's true. Like philosophy is the love of wisdom rather than wisdom itself. It's 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 a sort of pursuit of something that you love, and we all know that you know if you love something, then you can't really you 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 know that you can't fully own it, and wouldn't it be a horrible disaster if 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 we went around saying things that, that, that were absolutely true, you know, that sort of wouldn't be philosophy in a certain way. That always has to be some kind of wiggle room, play, futurality, emptiness in the whole thing. Um, I'm beginning to talk Buddhist a little bit because I said the word emptiness there. And maybe that's one way in which it can inform um, contemporary politics, you know, that since the situation we're in is so drastic and since the situation we're in is so sort of therefore ontological, all kinds of funny tricks might be required for us to kind of get up to speed with with that with those um and one of them might be um meditation and this kind of and, and immediately i say that you get in your mind a picture of some narcissistic guy in a kind of pretzel shape not doing the, the stuff that should be done um and at which point i could probably say something fatuous like well you know being reflective and contemplative is part of um Part of it, and, it, and it's also a political act to be reflective and, and, and blah 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 blah. Um, so I'm not going to say that, um, and um, I'm also going to say that you know being a Buddhist doesn't rule out being you know all kinds of other things. You know, like you can be a mum and you can be a member of a women's group and you can be a, a worker all at the same time. These things can kind of coincide in the same way that you can be a human being and you can be a bunch of bacterial microbiome stuff that can share its world with a lion, but only 30%, but 30% is better than nothing, as it were, um, and, um, and so on. So, you know, when, when you say practicing Buddhist, it, it doesn't mean like everything here is, is a Buddhist thing and that everything that comes out of my mouth is a Buddhist thing. Um, and the Buddhists watching this will laugh and think, no, yeah, pretty much nothing that comes out of Tim is, is, is really Buddhist, you know, um, in the sense that Tim is actually a sentient being, um, not a Buddha. Um, Last question. This oh, one, this one is I, I, I haven't answered it fully. Well, Reply. Yeah. Um, practicing is the yeah. question. What is it practicing? Practicing. It's not well, learning. Yeah, practicing. Like, for example, mm -hmm. he, he, this is not mm. Buddhism, it's Taoism. Mm. In the Tao Te Ching, once again, mm. Lao Tzu talks about how those who learn grow every day. Mm -hmm. Those who follow the way diminish mm. every day. Wow, that's interesting. Um, what, is it, what does it mean to practice? Yeah, to practice. Um, instead of learning, instead of yeah. beliefs and information. In a way, this goes back to the, the notion of philosophy. If philosophy isn't just the Sophie, the, 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 the Sophia part, if it's not just wisdom, if, if it's the love of wisdom, then it's a kind of practice that doesn't have um, an end point in, in particular. Um, and um, in the most esoteric forms of, of, of Buddhism, since Buddha mind and confused mind are kind of the same, I'm going to say kind of the same, um, not to get into trouble, but also because it's not quite true that they're exactly the same. Um, therefore, at any moment, you could kind of flip into something like enlightenment mode and then flip back into confusion mode. And these two things are kind of co-emergent all the time and kind of happening together, which is why there can be change in creativity because you're not totally stuck in your karma because, you know, Buddha was trying to say that, you know, working class people um, untouchables and so on and so on can also um, um, have some fun and, and, and like transcend their material conditions and so on and, and become Buddhas. You know, that, that's a sort of socially liberating part of it. Um, 
but um, I think another thing is that um, I agree with something that Nietzsche says, which is, you know, he says, you know, one of the things that Zarathustra says, actually, which is, you know, love thy um, neighbor as thyself, but, 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 but first of all, you have to love thyself, right? If, if only to find out what love thy neighbor could mean, you know, and as you're one of those neighbors, if I'm a little bit dislocated from myself all the time, then love my neighbor as myself is deep, deeply, deeply true, um, in a way. Um, in, in, in some Buddhist monasteries, they teach generosity, which is one of the parameters, one of the virtues that kind of gets you across to enlightenment. Um, in the following way, you have a ball in one hand and you have to give it to the other hand, you know, and then that, that hand gives it to that hand. And after 15 years of doing stuff like that, a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more, you're ready to die for whoever it is, you know, in, in some kind of confrontation with people holding weaponry because you're, you're, you're ready to let go of yourself, right? And actually that seems to be kind of a good space to be at politically, but it started with something that looked like narcissism. Now, I'm gonna say this word, and this is a word that's on people's minds because of the current president of the USA, and there's something very ugly happening in the USA along with the fascism, which is narcissistic disavowal of narcissism. In other words, quite a lot of people go, I'm not that guy over there, I'm not him, I'm not that awful, awful person, I can't even say his name, you know. Um, and of course this is narcissism, you know. I'm not a narcissist, I'm not this narcissistic person. Distinguishing yourself like that is narcissism, you know, and if you didn't have narcissism, you couldn't eat. You know, you, 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 you never would have breastfed or whatever, you know. Um, so kind of it's useful, and what we're really talking about is disordered narcissism. We're talking about wounded narcissism is the problem, not the narcissism in a way. And that um, engaging with political space might involve a more thorough engagement with narcissism, which sounds ever so scary, because now it means that in order to have, you know, like cool revolutionary thoughts, you might also have to have, you know, crystals and stuff. And going back to sounding like Yoda and stuff like that, it might mean that the way you conduct yourself looked a little bit more like something that you might dismiss as a kind of hippie thing um, than you might like, because there's been this aesthetic sort of distinction between cool kids who don't do that and, 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 and hippies, you know, who are there, you know. So my last question is just, I'll read a short poem by Adam Zagajewski, and you can tell me anything you want. This poem is Moths from A Book of Luminous Things by Adam Zagajewski. Moths washed us through the window. Seated at the table, we were skewered by the lambent gazes, harder than the shattering wings. You will always be outside, past the pain, and we will be always be here within, more and more in. Moths washed us through the window in August. Hmm. Somewhere in the middle of that poem, and I think it's important to say somewhere in the middle of rather than there, because you can't point to it. And that's the point. Somewhere ambiguously in that poem, a kind of weird flip occurs where you start to wonder, is the, are the moths narrating or are humans narrating? And that last line that uncannily repeats the first line really kind of nails that ambiguity. And 
I'm 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 a fan of ambiguity. I like ambiguity. I think that you know, a lot of what could be done in art and philosophy is kind of ambiguity tolerance training, and in a way, since things in general are deeply ambiguous because they're always exactly how they appear, yet they are not what how they appear at the same time. Um, raindrops are raindrops, they're not fish, but raindrop data isn't actual raindrops. Since that's the case, then ambiguity is, is an ontological feature of our world, not a superficial one, but an actually uh, something that's structuring our world. Um, and when I say our world, I don't really mean anything in particular by, by it in terms of human and non-human world. Um, the ambiguity in the poem, and I think poems in general maintain this kind of ambiguity for us lot, you know, kind of, kind of white Western people allow, allow some art to be ambiguous in the way that maybe other people might allow um, non-human beings to be ambiguous, right? Like, is this kangaroo really a kangaroo kangaroo, or is it actually a demonic kangaroo from some other dimension? I can't really tell. Or maybe the kangaroo's left ear is a, is a, is a weird gateway to some other world, and I can never really check, and maybe a hair on the kangaroo's ear is actually the gateway, and so on and so on. So this kind of default paranoia, I think, is a kind of way in which uh, whatever we call consciousness um, actually is. Um, and that whatever being um, First Peoples is, is, is all about, um, it, it, it necessarily doesn't involve some kind of lovely proto-fascist community thing where everything is fully present to everything else um, and from which we've horrifyingly fallen and to which we should be getting ourselves back to by any means necessary. What's wrong with this picture? Um, I think that it's involving a kind of ambiguity that, 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 that uh, so-called um, civilization tries to delete in various different ways. Um, and that, if anything, um, the practice, um, and we were just talking about practice, you know, in, in, in a way meditation practice, again, is allowing things to be ambiguous. It's a great uh, translation of Buddhism into Western sort of language would be you, whoever you think you are, are not the same as your experience. And meditation would be allowing experience to happen without grasping any of it and putting like a, this is a Tim experience, that isn't a Tim experience, that's a wrong, that's a, let's delete that one. You know, that, that, that isn't happening when meditation is happening. Um, some kind of weird, queasy ambiguity that has incredible beauty and also a kind of weird, disgusting sadness to it as well. All these strange things mixed together um, starts to happen in that kind of, in that kind of environment. And, and, and I find this, um, this kind of mood um, or mode to be, um, in a way, it's the secret source that kind of could actually ignite something really great in our, in our world. 